Hi, welcome to Ruin My Life, a podcast about forcing your friends to like the things you like. I'm Jason Edwards. I'm Kelsey Goldman. And with us, with us for the first time, is a, is a new guest. Um, welcome to the table, to the virtual table, <laughs> Brie Rohde, my internet friend and all-around cool person, uh, professional hate watcher, as she, uh, she brands herself. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Uh, this is not a hate watch. This is an intense love watch. <laughs> yeah. um, and we're going to be talking about The Simpsons specifically season one today. Um, I thought it, I thought it was really interesting that you specifically wanted to talk about season one of The Simpsons. Because when I pitched this to Jason, he was like, you know, I don't actually rewatch season one of The Simpsons that much. Um, and so I, <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. Um, I will begin by saying that I, um, before this experience, have consumed little to no uh, Simpsons content. I think you know, growing up in the in the '90s, and uh, you know, literally have been alive since The Simpsons was on TV. Like The Simpsons has been on TV my entire life. Uh, you can't avoid it. It's in the zeitgeist, as it were. But I have never like sat down and watched an episode of The Simpsons until this. So this was a really interesting experience for me. Um, I know that both of you are more uh, hardy consumers of The Simpsons, so please tell me, uh, Jason, why don't you start and then Brie can give us her rundown. Yeah, my my uh, relationship with The Simpsons is pretty, I think, pretty typical of most people my age. As you said, Kelsey, it's been around my entire life. I, I had like <laughs> I told you this is that I had a weird moment um, on this viewing of the season one, which is not only that not only that Marge and Homer are in their thirties, which I am as well, but that. Uh, based on the age, uh, and obviously they, their ages stay static throughout the entire run of the show, but based on the ages everyone's at, at the beginning of the show, I am actually also the same age as Maggie, which is just a, I don't know, it's not really interesting or funny, but it's one of those things, you know, it's just a little thing to note. But I, I, I encountered it through reruns. Uh, I saw it, I couldn't even tell you when I first saw The Simpsons. I think it was probably certainly uh, too soon uh without without question anyway uh so I, li- I liked it a lot it was my first introduction to i think a certain kind of humor a certain way of approaching uh the world and pop culture and i, I mean i i like many people my age first encountered uh the shining and various other movies through the simpsons parodies um <laughs> but we won't be getting into any of that on this discussion <laughs> No, they definitely uh, were not as much into the pop culture references really at all in season mm-hmm. one that the show would eventually become almost not known for, but definitely peppered with. Uh, for me, my, my experience is quite similar to you, Jason. I was born in June 1989 and The Simpsons debuted in December 1989, so I pretty much have grown up with The Simpsons. Um, additionally, like my parents were fairly permissive in terms of what we watched, which I think came from the fact that A, I had two working parents and B, I had two older siblings and so I watched what they watched and like my parents kind of trusted us that like yeah it might be a little inappropriate but like you guys know when to censor yourselves and I I did like I was a little kiss ass Lisa Simpson type so but um (laughs) and I will say that like you it really shaped my humor especially like my life was saturated with it at one point five o'clock was Simpsons on channel eight and then 5 30 was French Simpsons on a different channel and then 6 and 6.30 was back-to-back on our local Fox affiliate, which came out of Rochester. Um, so, yeah, I, I had seen, up until a, probably high school, I had seen every single episode, and that was when the decline in quality um, really started, as well as my, my sister moved out, and, like, 
that was a thing we always enjoyed together. Uh, so it affected the style of humor I had at a very young age to the point where like, not to sound pretentious, but I was a very pretentious kid because I wasn't placated by kids humor at all. So like in middle school, when everyone else my age was really into like Lizzie McGuire and the Weekenders, I was like, I like jokes about the Godfather. <laughs> so, um, but I've never, ever been a fan of season one. Like I never bought the season one DVDs. If a season one rerun came on in my Simpsons bitching, I would either skip it or tune out. So it's not until I got Disney Plus in November, I guess, that I really gave it another viewing. Additionally, the the amazing podcast Talking Simpsons recently did a revisit for the 30th anniversary of season one and helped me really appreciate just how awesome it is. Note for our listeners who may have caught the reference to French Simpsons there, and also note to myself, because I was momentarily very thrown off by it. Uh, Brie, you are, you are Canadian, is that correct? I am Canadian. I live in Toronto. Um, and I grew up in a town called Capascasing, which is very, very French. So we got a good amount of Quebec French programming. If you ever, even if you don't speak French, I would highly recommend listening to clips of French Canadian Simpsons. The voice acting is so fun. Spanish language Simpsons clips were a big thing like about eight or nine years ago, at least with some of my online uh, friends. So yeah, I would imagine that would also be good. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I very much relate to your experience of The Simpsons and also of being a pretentious child. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> but Kelsey, you, were, you grew up without that. Yeah, I, I grew up without that. I think I was still kind of a pretentious child, but in like oh, a certainly. very different way. Oh, certainly, certainly. <laughs> pretentious children, we all come together eventually, <laughs> right? Um, I think my, my uh, I guess like my adult humor like that I grew up on was Seinfeld. Like my mom watched Seinfeld every night and that was like the, and we watched the syndicated Seinfeld once it was on. So that was like, that was the like sort of uh, mark for me personally. Um and just, you know, was never into The Simpsons. I think The Simpsons was on on Sundays. Like, mm. and we just, like, my family, big, big sports family. Big sports family. Um, and the weekends were for sports. <laughs> um, we didn't do a lot of, like, uh, didn't set aside a lot of time on the weekends for watching, like, shows, I guess. Um, but, yeah, no, it's just, like, it, like, it wasn't an avoidance. It was just, like, it just never really happened, I guess. Um, so yeah, visiting this right now was, uh, really interesting for me because I am also, was also born in 1989, like both of you. Um, so yeah, it's like, this is, The Simpsons has been on my whole life and I don't feel like unfamiliar with it because it's been around forever and there's just so much of it, but I've never really like sat down and observed it. Um, and it was really interesting to, to do that. And I think, you know... I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch more after this like I'm gonna I didn't I purposely did not continue past season one I watched season one twice because it's only like 13 episodes I think um I watched season one twice and I purposely did not go on because I didn't want to sort of like sully the narrative or whatever <laughs> <laughs> um that I like already had happening um but I'm like interested to see how it evolves and how it changes because it does it feels like very much like a family sitcom, you know, which I don't think is how I would describe what I thought The Simpsons was. It, it definitely evolved um, relatively quickly to go outside of the family sitcom genre. And that was my whole thing with what I grew to appreciate about season one on the rewatch. And um, 
it was, again, I gotta give a bit of credit to Talking Simpsons, the podcast, for pointing out uh, some of the early interviews with Groening um, for, um, uh, because this isn't just a theory, this is a fact that Groening imagined the Simpsons as a family that was anachronistic by design. And so, like, Bart, uh, Bart is a great example. His catchphrase is the fact that he was, like, into skateboarding and he had these kind of surfer dude phrases, like, he was not supposed to be cool. He was supposed to be this dated kind of, like, he says in a later episode, like, mid, mid, maybe closer to season nine or ten, like, I'm this century's Dennis the Menace. And that was kind of, he was meant to be, like, kind of hanging a lampshade on the fact that Dennis the Menace is incredibly lame. Um, And so you see in the episode where he cuts off Jebediah Springfield's head, what happens when Bart or someone from this anachronistic family meets someone from the actual real world? Uh, like he meets real bullies and real bad kids and that's what real bad kids are actually like and here's this kind of loser kid on a skateboard like the whole thing is about uh, if you had a family that has these Brady Bunch-esque values and like kind of this vaguely Christian like oh trip off the old block boy and put them in a real world Um, and it's only probably around the third or fourth season that they started really having fun with just how insane the ensemble of Springfield is and so it expands far beyond the family and it goes from being this character driven show to being a universe driven show that that weirdly reminds me of uh, James Bond the James Bond novels because we, we when we think I mean the popular imagination I think of James Bond is that he's kind of this old timey throw like old timey character like you know oh yeah he's like it's kind of like weird and the, the sexual politics are really kind of fucked up and, and bad but you know it was from it was from the old days so it's like they didn't know any better but like yeah but like like dr no or like whatever the first casino royale i guess was the first james bond book came out in like the early 60s and he was designed as a character who was uh, in the present time he was a throwback then and we've kind of lost that and maybe this is just me but i didn't know the simpsons was was intended uh, in a similar vein I didn't even really, like, because I think because they're so identified now as an iconic thing of, I mean, they're obviously they're still very much around, but they were an iconic 90s thing. So th- there's, I, I think I, there's this idea in my head that, like, Bart especially was, like, a, just supposed to be a 90s kid, but he, he, but he wasn't. That's, that's really interesting. And the creators didn't anticipate how popular, um, I mean, they, they already didn't anticipate how popular the show would be. Like, they were convinced every single year, probably up until about Mike Scully became showrunner in season 9 or 10, that it was going to be cancelled. Um, like, I know Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein, they ran two of the best seasons, 7 and 8. They were so exhausted by season 8, but they really didn't think they would even get there. Every year they thought it would be cancelled, so they had no idea. They were not prepared for how big it was going to be. And Bart Mania, that was a thing mm. in the early 90s, they had no idea that was going to happen. It, I, I kind of imagine, like, this, he wasn't supposed to be cool. What the hell? Um, <laughs> my, my best friend Alex, um, God, Alex, I hope you're listening to this. Please support me. Um, he, um, he and I, you know, when you meet another adult and you hear them, like, quoting The Simpsons or something and you immediately, like, cling to each other, it's like a dental plan kind of call and answer. Um, we're, we're very much like that. He grew up with The Simpsons, but... Unlike me, his mom was always very cautious about, like, she found Bart too rude. She didn't want him to have a Bart Simpson t-shirt. And so now I look back, I was like, oh, my God, like, they played us all. He was supposed to be a (laughs) dork. And that was, yeah, that was a big thing, too. Parents and, like, parents groups, I don't know how much that represents actual real-life humans, but parents groups were very upset about Bart and how disrespectful and rebellious he was, right? 
I mean, I, I when I was 10, I moved to a town called Timmins, which was so much bigger at 45,000 people. Um, but it's um, very French, Italian, and Croatian, so very, very Catholic. It's like 65% Catholic. And that was my first time. I show up in the fifth grade thinking everyone's going to like me because I have all these Simpsons quotes and the Simpsons knowledge. And there were so many kids not allowed to watch The Simpsons. I like. I don't really remember being like forbidden from watching it, but I just like it. Just wasn't something that ever came across. But yeah, I think it's it's really interesting about Bart in particular and how he's supposed to be kind of like a dork, because like I do think that actually does come across in this season. Like he is, because he's not. He's like one of those kids who's not like. He's not like especially the um the episode the like the war based episode which I loved like where he's like getting beat up by like a an actual bully like he's not cool enough to he's like not strong enough to be a bully or not big enough to be a bully like he doesn't have that many friends like <laughs> I identified with Bart a lot more than I identified with Lisa and I really expected to identify with Lisa going into this and I was like oh no like Bart's just a nerd like I'm probably smarter than he was like he. I was probably smarter than he was in elementary school, but, like, I get, like, I have four friends, and I only talk to those people, and, and you know, I don't really know what I'm doing socially. Like, that makes sense to me. <laughs> I think uh, in, in later seasons, there was a line between Bart and Milhouse that kind of assesses their popularity, which is, we get beaten up, but we get a reason. <laughs> so I, I kind of use that. Um, that's Bart the General is one of my favorites, um, but it's also... Um, Again, it kind of goes to show that they were still, I mean, they were still figuring out the family. I think um, one of you guys in your notes mentioned Call of the Simpsons as being like a real standout episode, the one where they go camping. And I think that's when the family really came into their own. The supporting characters really did not come into their own pretty much at all. I think the most fully formed supporting character they have is Sideshow Bob. Um, (laughs) He's not really a supporting character. He just shows up every now and then. But one great example of that is Milhouse. Like, Milhouse is almost kind of, like, not quite a bad boy, but he is just as much of a shit disturber as Bart. And he, like, whoa, watch out, man, Skinner's coming! Like, his voice is pitched a little lower. Um, He's just such a weenie after season one. And, like, I love how much of a weenie he is. But when you picture that in season seven he's going to be making, like, sprinkler faces and then compare that to the Milhouse in season one, it's a completely different character. Can we talk briefly about the voices? Because as someone who yeah, never watches really anything before season two, or but yeah, because season two has the first Trios of Horror, and so when I'm doing my semi-yearly viewing of all of those, or at least all of the even halfway decent ones, I come across season two a lot. Uh, the voices in season one are wrong. They're all bad. Well, they're not all wrong. <laughs> Marge is pretty much good from the beginning. Lisa and Bart are both pretty strong. But Homer is like, it's really hard to get through. I mean, not... It's not really challenging, but it, it, it makes me angry in a way that, that's not appropriate. As a child, it bothered me so much. Like, <laughs> I was a kid who had a difficult time adjusting to change, and I've always been very audio sensitive. So I remember being like five or six and wanting to cry because this wasn't the Homer I knew. <laughs> um, it's it, funny. Um, there were also like, they. I think they had the core cast, including Harry Shearer and Hank Azaria, who did a lot of the utility playing. What they also didn't have, though, was a lot of the other supporting guys. Like, um, one guy who does a couple voices in that season is Sam McMurray, who I don't know if either of you are familiar with the movie Drop Dead Gorgeous. It's a mockumentary. Oh, my God. 
It's my. It's like it's like top five favorite movies of all time for me. I made Jason watch it. <laughs> yeah, have we not done that for the podcast? That's a great movie. We need to do that for the podcast. Oh, it's, it's a, a great movie. Good movie. Anyway, go on. Uh, so Sam McMurray <laughs> does a few kind of utility voices. He is somewhat of a character actor. He plays the father. He plays Denise Richards' father, uh, Kirstie Alley's husband, the furniture store owner in Drop Dead Gorgeous. Yeah. He's yeah. very briefly seen as a dad of one of the campers in Adam's Family Values. Um, but, and then there was an, um, one voice actor, Christopher Collins, who was like, he was a Saturday morning cartoons guy. I think he was one of the 1980s Transformers voices. He was originally the voice of Mr. Burns and Moe. And it just didn't work out for whatever reason. They didn't like his voice. So in production, they ended up replacing his voice with um, Hank Azaria, Harry Shearer, like they, they, all, all the voices that he did. So, um, but like even Mr. Burns, kind of like Homer, that would upset me because it sounded too different. He sounded too low and not like withered enough. Um, the school psychiatrist sounds more like Mr. Burns as we know him than Mr. Burns. I, with, with Homer, the lore was that Dan Castellaneta was trying to do Walter Matthau, which, <laughs> uh, like, again, my main reference to Walter Matthau as a kid was Grumpy Old Men and the Dennis the Menace movie, so I, I couldn't appreciate that. But there's also a Fred Flintstone vibe about it, and he's, again, it's that very broad, like, oh, what you got there, boy? Um, <laughs> it's, it's so goofy. Well, and more so than the speaking voice, what I think is the biggest um, upset about Homer in season one is that they had not yet discovered how awesome it is when Dan Castellaneta screams. His screaming is so yes. good. Like I think he probably does most of it in Call of the Simpsons, but even like in the episode where they send Bart to France, which I think is the weakest episode of the first season, like him falling down the stairs, they in even two seasons later they would have had a big. Ah! Like, uh, whereas it's more of a muttering, it's like, it's, it's so doesn't fit. And that grumbliness, like I said, it upset me as a child. I think um, one of the really surprising things for me was like, uh, I think Jason might have said something about this in the notes. Like, I think Homer is too competent. Like, he was much more competent than I expected him to be in, in this season. Like, uh, I, you know, because I expected him to be a very big doofus. And he was a doofus, but he wasn't as big a doofus as I expected. Um, so that was that was a thing that really surprised me. And I think I think the, the Call of the Simpsons episode that you mentioned briefly, for me, that was like a turning point where I kind of saw things coming together. And I think specifically because you get sort of an idea of how big a doofus uh, Homer is. And also you get a, like a Maggie-only storyline which I think is really clever and really well done because um, I really think she was not utilized previ- previous to that. Um, and and I know that that is something that they continue to do later. Um, I, I, see, unfortunately, Maggie does become kind of a prop. She, But she's a very funny prop. Um, I, I don't know this for sure, but I do feel like Maggie's storyline in Call of the Simpsons was inspired by one of the best Almond shorts, um, I didn't watch the Almond Shorts uh, at the time, and I still actually haven't seen them all. 
but there is um, a two-parter in which Maggie is playing outside and Bart and Lisa aren't really watching her and her ball gets away from her and she chases the ball and she ends up going through the sewers and through a river and like surfing and stuff and it's really cute it's really funny it was a two-parter but it was just the absolute best and I feel like they kind of recaptured some of that magic because there's a, a, a bit of an underlying thing that they somewhat abandoned in season one which is that Maggie is actually the smartest and most competent Simpson and she really holds her own you you kind of see it in Bart the genius like Lisa even isn't fleshed out as a genius like she's more her thing is she's more sensitive uh, you know, she is a little bit gifted, but she's like, just her, her thing is more that she's an outsider in the family. You see Maggie in um, Bart the Genius and she's stacking her blocks and actually making words. Uh, and so I, I feel like that plus Call of the Simpsons, they might have been going for a thing of like, this baby is actually the only competent one. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, what's interesting about Lisa to me is that like Lisa really strikes me as like, a kid who got told they were gifted in elementary school and has art and is now in like high school or college and is like dealing with the fact that they weren't like truly quote unquote gifted not that it's a thing but like you, you know what i'm saying right like she has that like but like she already is that even though she's in second grade <laughs> you know the the moaning lisa episode is such an amazing episode because like you said like it actually talked about depression uh pretty much and, and I, um, and I also feel like that was when Marge started to become fully formed, because, like, Marge is probably the bigger doofus than Homer, especially in the first half of the season. Like, she's just so, like, blank-faced and silly and not engaged. And that one, it actually kind of ties it back with Marge's backstory. She says, like, my mother told me to always smile, and you see her realize right in the episode, oh, that was bullshit. And so... It's great because it kind of gives like a, pathology, a pathological reason for Marge being the way she is, but gives her a chance to move beyond that one note, spacey, dim housewife. Yeah, she's kind of limited in this season or in most of the season to being just the foil for Homer, just literally the like, you know, the disappointed or frustrated wife, which is a role she plays throughout the entire show. But she does like, I mean, but she, she, the show opens up to where she has other things to do and like her own specific kind of. Um, off kilter brand of humor, like the famous screen cap of her with the potato, or I remember when she when she makes the uh, the homemade Pepsi, and it's a little thick. But the price is right. Yeah, <laughs> it's like her, she develops her own sort of like weird, like bizarre um, style as the show goes on. With, with with Maggie, I do feel like they are somewhat limited in the stories they can tell about her because she is a nonverbal infant. So there's there's not a lot there's not a whole lot you can do there. Uh, they do give her a nemesis as time goes on, as I. As I remember, I don't remember if this is a recurring thing, but there is an episode right where they like they are trying to get Maggie in a nicer preschool because they are aware that she is, um, you know, probably pretty intelligent, but they're kind of limited by their financial uh, options. Is that does that happen later no, on? No, that's actually Lisa. Um, it's a it's a flashback oh. episode, and it's them oh, oh, trying to nurture okay. Lisa's gift and sent. Which maybe they should have just sent her to the school that Bart went to. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, it was them, and so she was given her saxophone instead. Um, yeah, Maggie, um, she does have a daycare episode though. In like the third season or so, uh, she goes to the Anne Rand School for Tots, and she breaks a bunch of kids out of the daycare. <laughs> it's it's pretty amazing. Like so, when Maggie does get her get her time to shine, like I, I totally agree with you. It's it is hard to 
do a lot with a nonverbal child, and um, which the one time she does speak in early season, she's actually voiced by Elizabeth Taylor, which I think is very special. Um, but when she is a prop, they do use it pretty cleverly. Like there's an episode where Homer literally dribbles her like a basketball, and it's, it's very well animated. <laughs> Going back a little bit to the discussion of um, uh, Kelsey, how you identified with Bart more than than Lisa, Brie, I'm curious if you ever like really identified with any of the characters in the show. Oh, shit, yeah, I thought I was such a Lisa. I, I think every like pretentious, gifted kid uh, did think they were a Lisa. I was a musician, although I played uh, brass and not woodwind. I was a French horn player, um, but. Lisa did give me a lot of hope and a lot of um, kind of assurance that I could be happy. Um, I actually, uh, I'd written an essay on Medium several weeks ago about how um, the seventh season finale, Summer of Four Foot Two, like it's my favorite episode of all time. And it was so important to me because it showed that Lisa could finally get something. Um, but even the, the feeling of uh, like in Moaning Lisa, all her friends are just kind of enjoying dodgeball and enjoying recess, and she's already, you know, at seven years old, being preoccupied with, oh, there's a lot of things that are wrong with the world. And I did get like that quite young, uh, like, well, how can I be happy when I know my parents have money problems? Or how can I be happy when I know that this person is sick? And um, being a little oversensitive, um, I, I do think that as Lisa came into her own and became more of a character in later seasons she almost became a bit of a punching bag and became a bit of like a soapbox type so sometimes the humor was more at her expense but at least in this season they treated her with a lot of dignity which um as a apple polisher myself i loved yeah they definitely lose as time as time has gone on and we could spend a whole other hour talking about later seasons so we don't need to get too into it but there was definitely an emotional grounding in this first season that is very much absent nowadays. Uh, but it's kind of odd because it kind of limits the show a little bit. Not that there is emotional grounding, but that they do want to keep it somewhat realistic because I think part of the appeal of this being an animated version of a you know, sitcom family uh, is that you can do wild stuff like, like, like Call of the Simpsons or like some of the other stuff where they go on, like they, things get a little bit, like, I mean, yeah, stuff, you know, things where Maggie send is. send Bart to France. Yeah, Bart goes to France. <laughs> Um, I shouldn't have added an and there because uh, Call of the Simpsons is the best example because the whole thing with Maggie you could not do in a real in a live action show or at least not to the same degree. Uh, but I, but that's why you know that's why the the golden years of the Simpsons are so special because they strike that balance of keeping things you know keeping you aware that these are characters with sort of real motivations and pathologies, but things get you know things get a little bit wackier you might yeah. say. Well, uh, Homer eventually became Captain Wacky. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I, I went way too into detail in my notes um, <laughs> yeah, is uh, with the expanded cast. Um, I have um, I have these two um, these two terms that I like to use um, in terms of cast. There's either a Seinfeld cast or an It's Always Sunny cast. Um, and the Seinfeld cast is one in which your core characters are very strange and very flawed and you don't always understand their motivations and they are very quirky and strange but the expanded cast and the people who kind of come in from episode to episode are straight men and it's about weirdos uh like weirdos and how the outside world the outside normal world interacts with them then there's the it's always sunny it's always sunny in philadelphia type of cast where at least post season one you learn that everyone around them is as weird as they are 
And that's where the comedy comes from, is that this is a completely topsy-turvy world. Everyone's morally bankrupt. Everyone is messed up. Um, the Simpsons starts out in that very Seinfeldian way. Uh, pretty much everyone around them is a straight man, and I think that's so interesting. Even Mr. Burns, uh, who is one of my favorite characters, um, he's not even that weirdly evil. He's just kind of corporate evil. Um, <laughs> he's not a cartoonish supervillainy uh, yet. Or... Um, Mo is a fantastic example. Mo, another one of my favorite characters, but like, um, like I know you guys are bothered by the design of his bar. Um, I oh my god, I was just I was just about to go on a whole. It's so it makes me <laughs> insane. It's so wrong. It's so because the actual the the final Mo's design is so it's good a rectangle and with a door. Yeah. Uh, but the, the version of this one's all blue. It looks really small. And there's like there saloon are... doors. It's like part of another building. Yeah. What What is going on there? So I have this headcanon that Mo. Uh, this This is like just completely headcanon that Mo is like the owner of a pub or a restaurant or something. But he's too grumpy for any type of front of house work. So he just stays in the back in this danky place with these weird barflies. But um, yeah, like his personality is like in the first season he's this working class dude and he's home he's that um bar bar fly or barkeep archetype um i'm the wise old man that gives homer advice and even like character designs in the season they were so ugly like when uh, i don't watch a lot of modern simpsons but it's been pointed out that when new characters come on and they're designed to look modern bart and lisa look fucked up um but like mo he in later seasons is written to be this ugly ugly man i don't think in season one they even decided that he was an ugly guy i think that everyone that season was ugly and he just fit with the universe he does have a missing tooth in the first season which they almost never remember to draw back in sometimes it makes it in but yeah i love classic mo this like He's just always giving Homer this sober advice. He's not the complete mess that he would be in later years. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always deeply weird in Modern Simpsons when like a, the celebrity guest star for the episode shows up, and it's it, and they all and they have like very finely detailed representations of their actual face and hairstyle and clothing. But Bart, you know, still just and Bart and Lisa both just have lines for hair. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that that was the question I had just design wise. Why do none of the Simpsons' children have Marge's blue hair? There are a few characters with blue hair that I... My only explanation is that I think the straight yellow, like, no hairline was meant to be how they signified blonde hair, and blue was maybe meant to be how they signified darker hair. Um, which also, your, your question makes me think... Why the hell does Milhouse look exactly like both of his parents? Why did two of these people who look exactly alike find each other? Are Milhouse's <laughs> parents cousins? Because it would explain a lot. <laughs> but yeah, like you have kids with gray hair too. Like Richard and Lewis both have gray hair. Sherry and Terry who, like those, you want to talk ugly designs. Sherry and Terry who have purple hair and their father appears to be, who, again, that's another Sam McMurray voice, but their father is Homer's supervisor and we never see him again, but he appears to be an entirely different race from them. One other thing that I wanted to bring up just outside of my being like, this cartoon genealogy doesn't make sense, um, was, I mean, 
I feel like it's a little bit of a power move to be like the pilot of our show is going to be the Christmas episode. That power move was, was actually like... an accident. <laughs> the first season was mired in difficulties. I think at a certain point they did not even think that the first season would get made. Um, it was its premiere was pushed back. Um, which I don't know if the premiere was pushed back independent of the production issues um, and it just happened to coincide or if the premiere was pushed back because of their production issues. Initially, the first episode was supposed to be what was their last episode, uh, Some Enchanted Evening, the Babysitter Bandit episode. Um, And then it was supposed to go to Bart the Genius. Uh, There was a little bit of flip and flop, but um, the Christmas special was supposed to be like middle of the season, maybe five episodes in. Um, and, and you do realize that there are some inconsistencies after like Homer's job because at the start of the series he's a technical supervisor and then he becomes safety inspector um, it kind of jumps around from episode to episode in terms of where he's working in the plant um, there's a message in the first uh, in the first episode where Homer says oh we've been able to or Mr. Burns says we've been able to increase safety without adding on to the cost of the consumer and that's because of the safety initiatives in Homer's odyssey so um, it, I think the only reason why they got away with it ultimately was because they were an established IP from the Tracy Ullman show, but yeah, it's weird as shit when, like, I grew up not, obviously not knowing about the production, uh, controversies and, and the issues that they had, but just like, I've never ever heard of a series that starts with a Christmas special. Because I, I, like, started watching it and I was on Disney Plus and I was like, is this right? Or did, like, Disney Plus just, like, put... Like, is this, like, a random episode that, you know, got made separate and they just put it first because they didn't know where else to put it? And then I was like, no. And and then, like, Disney Plus also has, like, eight different ways you can navigate to The Simpsons place and get to different episodes. So I was like, did I do something wrong? So I had to, like, double check three times. I was like, oh, no, the first episode is just a Christmas episode. Okay. Did you... this is important for our listeners, and by which I mean um, Ben, if he ever hears this. Did you fix the mm-hmm. aspect ratio before you started watching the show? So I watched the first two episodes, uh, and I felt that they were wrong. Oh, okay. Um, okay, okay. I got nervous there I for a second. Into, I, watched, I watched the first two episodes, and I was like, this doesn't feel right. Something's wrong. And then I was like, oh, wait, there's an aspect ratio thing. I remember Ben ranting about it for, like, days. <laughs> um, and so I went and fixed that and rewatched the first two episodes. At the right aspect ratio. <laughs> I, I'd fixed it a long time ago. Um, and a, a lot of people complain about, um, like, when they point it to jokes that it's ruined, they talk about the Duff beer barrels thing. It actually ruined one of my favorite jokes, and this never gets any credit, which is there's uh, an episode in which um, Marge and Homer are having a lot of sex, and um, Bart and Lisa, they're given a bunch of money and, like, you know, kind of go see a Star Wars type thing. And then they watch all this footage of, like, a rocket going off and a train going down a tunnel and stuff, and it pans out. And in the Disney Plus version, it just says film festival behind them. And it's cut off the joke, which is stock footage film festival. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, once it became available, which was a couple months ago, I switched over and have not regretted it since. Yeah, and as for for the the animation of, uh, obviously, watching, you know, the season one whenever i did see it as a even as a kid even not knowing the production issues uh you can tell with some enchanted evening that what became the season finale that they they were having some trouble there with the animation like there's entire shots where all of a sudden the characters are just floating in a massive colored void um <laughs> with, with no spatial reference yeah especially in the simpson home we're all like gradient it's so strange i'm really glad like 
I, I can't contextualize that within what other animation looked like in the late 80s. I'm sure it was of its time, but I'm man, am I glad they moved on from that. Yeah. I think that's also another reason why I think people probably were more forgiving of the, like, continuity errors is because this was the first i mean obviously not, not everyone was watching every episode as it came out because uh, if you missed it that was just it um but all, the i 90s. think yeah it was definitely was it was the 90s and people they didn't really care you know sitcoms could you could change everything from one episode to the next and no one would really really notice i will say one thing that i really um I, I, I also, because I liked adult cartoons as a child, I've been a huge fan of King of the Hill pretty much mm-hmm. my whole life. It came out when I was like seven, and again, I've seen Oh, it. classic show. That, that, was huge, that was huge for me, because it was like, they're making a new show, like the, like the Simpsons, and I was seven, so that's like the only way I understood it. So I was like, what's it going to be like? And then it was... And King of the Hill's in North Carolina, right? No, it's in Texas. I do always forget that Greg Daniels, who is, I mean, my judge is technically the creator, but Greg Daniels developed the characters. I always forget that he is a Simpsons writer because his style is so not Simpsons. Like Simpsons, mm. especially around the second, third season, it evolved into how many jokes can we do per minute? And that's kind of its gift. Whereas Greg Daniels' humor is very like patient and very, uh, which I mean, this season is a little, the, the first season of The Simpsons is a little bit this way too. Greg Daniels wasn't a part of this, but um, like you see, he did the exact same thing on The Office, very observational. But um, with, with King of the Hill, one uh, I don't really like it being compared to Simpsons that much because I'm like, no, they're very different shows. But one really amazing thing to contrast is that what made King of the Hill really unique was that everything, especially design-wise, was set from the get-go. Uh, Wes Archer, who was um, their um, uh, supervising director, I think, uh, which he had come from The Simpsons, he did uh, like amazing work with the character packs in terms of these, this is how Peggy stands. This is how Peggy walks. Like this is like they figured out the layout of the Hills house from day one. Whereas like the Simpsons house layout jumps all over and it creates like a sense of like it became almost a joke um, as a kid. Uh, like not like even the the seldom seen rumpus room. Like whatever fucking happened to the rumpus room? Um, but it like. I think eventually what the Simpsons learned to do was they leaned into that even like I don't think they ever intended for you know where is Springfield and what state is Springfield and to become a joke but I think they kind of realized that we can find humor in our unknowns we can find humor in our inconsistency like they eventually started poking fun at how non-continuous it was. Which is a thing you can do if your show is just so good like from a on a basic like moment-to-moment level um, that you can like you know, people aren't thinking about anything else. They're just thinking about the jokes and the characters and the stories. And that's really uh, good. It's a good show. The Simpsons, I'm here. I'm going to say it. I think, I think it's good. It's true. It's and good. you should say it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one thing that like really um, uh, you'll, I think Kelsey, once you watch past season one, you will enjoy being free of this aspect of season one, which is a man named Richard Gibb. Uh, Richard Gibb was the original composer of um, the episode music. He didn't do the theme, but he did uh, He did the episode music. He was eventually replaced by Alf Clausen. Um, his stings are so on the nose, and they're so big and broad. Like, Homer makes a mistake. It's like, and like, uh, the, the Simpsons... Uh, the Simpsons RV crashes, and for some reason, an organ plays. Like it's, or um, Krusty is arrested, and Bart's sad in his room, and it's like sad clown music. It's it's so bad. Um, there's there are very few. I think like the only credit I can give him is 
most of the music in Call of the Simpsons was very cute. Everything else was so on the nose, and, like, he he also hasn't gone on, like, he's gone on to do a lot, but nothing good. Like, he's just one of those utility music players. Like, he did the, the Honeymooners reboot and Fat Albert, but, like, this guy, I'm like, you are such, like, as a, as a composer, you're already, like, an E-lister in Hollywood, and I feel like <laughs> on the composers, he's, like, he's, I don't know, like, a really low G-flat kind of E-lister. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really notice the 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 music. Um, I mean, I I definitely can identify what you're describing because the the music like later on the sort of the what is typically thought of as sort of the actual Simpsons music is there, there's a lighter touch there certainly. Like peaceful, almost. Um, one of the best things that they ever did music wise was when they did the Cape Fear episode, and they basically just used the Cape Fear theme. Um, they, I just think they didn't know subtlety, and they also didn't know how beautiful it could be to actually like orchestrate something and orchestrate a melody like these are just stings and they're yeah. so bad yeah that, that's true i guess i guess there is more music when the uh when when clausen takes over but it definitely i don't know it, it, it's more of a piece with the show's overall tone and kind of i think because it is gentler and more yeah i guess that that's that's i guess what i'm hearing there is it's, it's gentler and like underscores things in a more subtle or even just not like cartoonishly on the nose type way yeah Oh, well, so I was just um, really uh, curious, um, Jason, as to how much you followed or, like, kept up with uh, the writers' rooms in terms of, like, who show ran what season and stuff. Is that something you cared about? Very little. Very little. The Simpsons is very near and dear to me in a very specific way. Uh, I have never really... I, I don't... I guess I just never really made this kind of connection with it, but I've never really gotten full, like you know, what we might call kind of like nerdy about it. Like I've never really gotten into the, uh, you know, the BTS, so to speak. Yeah. I wanted to be a comedy writer as a child. So um, the second I could kind of like... You really were a pretentious child, weren't you? Oh my God. <laughs> I had a... Th- what I amazing... mean, I think we all want to be comedy writers at some point in yeah. our lives, right? We ha- we're on a podcast. <laughs> I have a face for podcasting, so... Uh, no, I, I, I had like just this really intense interest in uh, the writers. And it was like, I, I'll say the second I was old enough to Google, I was finding out everything I could about the writers. And what was interesting about this season was that most of the writers in the writers room um, stayed on for at least a little while. I think the only ones that might have left after the first season, although they might have stuck around, were Jay Kogan and Wally Walidarski, um, who have written quite a bit in Hollywood. But um, you had Mike Reese and Al Jean, who would eventually become showrunners. And actually, Al Jean, he left for a few years because they, they did um, uh, they did The Critic, and then they did Teen Angel, which is was a TGIF show in, like, the late 90s. I don't know if anyone remembers Teen Angel. Sorry, I, I don't. That sounds vaguely familiar. It aired, I believe, the lineup uh, that year, because I remember this shit, was Sabrina the Teenage Witch, then Boy Meets World, then Teen Angel, then a show called You Wish, which was about a sexy genie. Uh, I remember you wish remember very very clearly. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I guess I guess for me and Kelsey, you wish made a stronger impression. So uh, um, Teen Angel. So after Teen Angel uh, failed a couple years after that, I think it was season twelve or thirteen. Al Jean came back, and he's actually most showrunners only run one or two seasons. Uh, Al Jean is still the showrunner today. So he came back season twelve. We're now in like season thirty-two, and he is still running the show. So he's a he's a season one guy, and I think that's really cool. And I know that. I mean, I haven't watched it in more than 10 years, but um, some people, like my sister said, there's a lot of really good episodes still. And I want to say that that's because you've got at least one guy who was there 
from the start. Um, the other uh, very interesting writer from that year is John Schwartzwalder. Um, John Schwartzwalder, um, I believe they said they modeled the character of Herman after him, except I assume John Schwartzwalder had two arms, but, um, or has two <laughs> arms. Um, if people ever bring up, oh yeah, well one of, the, one of the top writers on The Simpsons was a hardcore conservative, you know, as like a gotcha, um, they're probably <laughs> talking about John Schwartzwalder. I would never describe him as a hardcore conservative or a Republican because I don't think he was affiliated with party politics at all, but he is like the weirdest libertarian, like I think kind of lives in a bunker type. Um, he, hasn't, he hasn't written for the show for a long time, but he was at one point the most prolific writer, so he was never the top writer. I would have loved to see uh, a sh season show run by John Schwartzwelder, um, but he mm -hmm. loved old-timey shit. He loved Western stuff. Um, Bart the General was obviously written by John Schwartzwelder. He loved chaotic stuff. Um, uh, but he was like this weird, like, always smoking indoors. Like, I think the second the writers were allowed to work from home, he started doing that because he was just constantly smoking while writing. And so, like, the lore of John Schwartzwelder, he's also, like, he's never done a commentary, he's never done interviews, and he's just retired to write, like, weird cowboy books since. And so I really, I don't care if he's a weird libertarian. I kind of want to be John Schwartzwalder. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I wouldn't agree with his politics, but we need more people like that writing comedy, and especially writing like network comedy shows. Just weirdo cranks who like live out in the woods as much as they possibly can. And I guess, yeah. I mean, and, like, and you, I feel like you can tell that that show is written by, a liber that episode is written by a libertarian, right? Because like, it is like, a celebration of like the theater of war and the like the idea and storytelling of war but also like a takedown of like what war means in the american <laughs> you know like you know mind um i i like that episode a lot uh what i will say what I will say about Schwartzwelder's politics is I kind of give him a pass because he hates all the same Democrats I hate. <laughs> like, he just, he hated Clinton, and I am also not a fan of Clinton. Uh, so all, like, in the later seasons, the anti-Clinton jokes came from him, um, which was fantastic. Um, but, like, yeah, you like you were saying, Kelsey, like, he's saying, oh, um, you know, you can... You can send him off a plane, you can send him off to die on some godforsaken rock, but for some reason you can't slap him. Um, plus that whole episode was was um, inspired by the movie Patton, which, like, who, what other dork would be watching the movie Patton except John Schwartzwelder? But one writer that wasn't so lucky, unfortunately, was Mimi Pond, uh, who wrote the very first episode. She wrote the, the Christmas special. Um, she was not hired on as a staff writer. She wrote it as a freelancer, and that was because, um, and they've, they've admitted to this, but Sam Simon, who was running the writer's room at the time, he didn't want dames in the writer's room. He <laughs> didn't want women. Um, he was very, very hesitant to hire women. Um, I mean, for the first 10 years of the season, like there weren't female staff writers. There were um, some freelance written by women, but that was it. Um, and she kind of ended up leaving Hollywood and she became an artist, I want to say, but um, she like she doesn't remember her time too fondly. So that's the one thing about the first episode that kind of makes me really sad is mm -hmm. that like, oh, this talented woman like lost out on an opportunity just because a guy literally didn't want dames in the writer's room. That's upsetting. And you, and you still hear that shit nowadays, too, right? You still hear occasionally like, you know, writers or showrunners or whatever will slip and, and say the... Uh, you know the 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 quiet part loud, and be like we don't we I, we don't want women in the writers room. Then you can't you can't be funny if there's women around. 
which is, I guess, regressive now. I guess it was regressive. I mean, it was definitely regressive then too. It's certainly uh, fucking nuts, but it that's that. I mean, that that is, it's especially. I I really hate that he like they, the fact that she was freelance and they would also like have scripts written by women, but only freelance is really like an, an extra layer of disgusting. Cause like, you'll take the work, you'll take the, you know, the scripts, but you, you're not giving them a job or anything. That yeah, is a, the, the writers in that were like, they were awesome. And like, I, I think I'm not going to say like men can't write for women or anything. I mean, like my, my favorite episode was written, uh, uh, summer four foot two was written by a largely male staff. But if you look at some of the best episodes that actually feature, like, say, Marge, who rarely gets an episode to herself, um, uh, scenes from the class struggle in Springfield, in which Marge joins the country club, um, that was written by a woman, and that was one of the only episodes, I feel, that actually explored Marge's inner life. And it's, like, I mean, John Schwartzwelder, uh, I think it was Mike Reese who wrote in his book, he would literally forget to write Marge and Lisa into episodes. They would have to give them, like, one or two lines. There are some episodes where like Lisa has three lines and like, oh, this must've been a Schwarzwelder script. That, that's, I mean, that's a, you know, not to get too gendery about it, but that is a benefit to having women in the writer's room is that they will remind you that there are in fact women on the show who could probably <laughs> use some lines. <laughs> I'm, I'm really curious as to what everyone's favorite episode from season one is. I think mine was probably um, called The Simpsons. I just, it felt like the most like complete episode to me like it felt mm-hmm. like because you have like i think there that you had a very clear a b and c story and like it just felt very together and i felt like all the characters were explored in an interesting way um i don't know it that one just it felt the most complete and like the most memorable to me yeah i, I would agree with that i would say second for me is probably the crepes of wrath even though i really i feel awful for bar in that episode he really goes through it man <laughs> yeah but the what, what what I like what I do like about that is it has my my one real you know my one my major complaint about this season is that the jokes just aren't really there in the way they were later on because as you said Bree like the the show's joke per minute uh, ratio was like what made it so special in a lot of ways but I do think the, the entire the entire bit uh, the beginning of this episode where where Homer trips over the the uh, skateboard and like he ends up lying on the floor for like hours and hours is um. <laughs> The style of that and the way he just sort of gets abandoned there for for, for most of a day is reminiscent of, of like the later um, seasons humor for me. Although, yeah, it could have used a nice loud scream from Homer as he fell on the stairs to really kick it off. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I actually I think the creep creeps of wrath is my least favorite episode, and I feel really <laughs> bad for it. One thing also I noticed upon the most recent reviewing was that. Call of the Simpsons, the one thing uh, that I think also has going for it, Kelsey, you talked about how complete it is. I think it's the only episode where the grown-ups and the kids have a plot that works together. The The kids stuff is so separate from the grown-up stuff, and it becomes not distracting, but it's like there's a very clear line between the kids' episodes and the grown-ups' episodes. Like one minute you have Bart standing up to a bully, and the next minute you have Marge thinking of having an affair. Like it's it's a huge it's a world of contrast. Uh, yeah. No, my favorite episode is Krusty gets busted. Um, I wish it had been the season finale because um, A it was the first one that really expanded on the universe um, because you have you know Bart's hero Krusty the clown. You know who he is. Like he's shown up before and he was in the shorts to my understanding. Um, and you 
take Sideshow Bob and just create a fully fleshed out character in one episode. Kelsey Grammer was so perfect. I've heard Kelsey Grammer is actually kind of a bastard, which sucks because I, I love Kelsey Grammer as an actor so much and just like his, oh, really? Like it's, it's so perfect for Sideshow Bob. Um, it's, you know, Jason, you were talking about things that couldn't be done if they weren't cartoons. I would think the whole idea of Sideshow Bob pretending to be Krusty the Clown, someone with completely different hair and a different build, and we will later find out diff- like completely different background. Like Krusty, it's not mentioned in season one, but Krusty is a Jewish character. Uh, and you just, he... Like somehow Sideshow Bob just looks exactly like Krusty the Clown and sounds exactly like him too when robbing the Quickie Mart um, because you can do that because it's a cartoon. And the reveal of his feet at the end too would be really kind of like, uh, that would be a, a different vibe in, in real life. But yeah, Sideshow Bob canoe feet. Um, but <laughs> like, what I, I also think there's just such a fun, clever thing in how like Sideshow Bob's show that he takes over is so much better than like Krusty the Clown literally is leading a suicide cult with the kids in his eyes. <laughs> what would you do if I went off the air? We'd kill ourselves. <laughs> um, and Sideshow Bob is like he's captivated them with literature and stuff. And what I think um, kind of becomes underplayed in later seasons is that Sideshow Mel, who replaces him, fucking sucks. Like, no <laughs> one likes Sideshow Mel. Um, here comes Sideshow Mel. Um, but yeah, I think even though we don't get enough um, of Margin Homer in that, I think it's just, it's the first one that really expands on it. You know, you get Chief Wiggum, um, who, like, Chief Wiggum is in a few episodes before that, but he is finally established to be a moron who doesn't really do anything. Um, you get Reverend Lovejoy in there. So, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Krusty Gets Busted, and I love Bart the General just because it's so Schwartzwaldery. Um, when I was trying to think of, like, the episodes I watched most as a kid, though, I have to confess that I forgot how VHSs worked because... Um, when I was a kid, like before the DVDs came out, I um, I had two episodes on that were on the same VHS. It was like they were sold that way. And I know one of them was Bart the General, and I couldn't remember. I was like, well, the other one was either um, The Creeps of Wrath or Krusty Gets Busted. I kind of remember it being both. And then I thought, well, of course, one was on one side, and then you flipped it over, and it was on the other side. And I just, I... A competent 31-year-old woman thought that uh, you could flip VHSs. It's too bad you I couldn't, because you could flip you could flip uh, cassette tapes. That was it the whole feels thing. Like you should be able to, right? Yeah. <laughs> Seems like an oversight. That's probably why. That's probably why VHSs went went away in the first place. Tell you what, guys, slap a second side on those bad boys. That you got your you got something there. Well, that was like the whole thing when DVDs first happened, and like you, like. Some DVDs had stuff on both sides, right? Like you could flip them over. It was real. It was a real dangerous thing too, because on one side they sometimes had the full screen version. Yeah. And sometimes if you put on the full screen by accident, and you started playing it, and then you realize that it was uh, not the widescreen version, and you want to start over, uh, they wouldn't let you. And it was a real problem when you're trying to enjoy the movie, Dad. Oh no. <laughs> You know, my parents um, were but, but, insanely indifferent about aspect ratios, so I can I feel your pain. That was a thing, though, that I, I feel like no one really remembers was um, VHS tapes of, like, two episodes of a series. Like, I had a Rugrats tape like that. I had... Oh, yeah. And it was orange. 
I remember those orange Nickelodeon mm-hmm. tapes, man. So <laughs> actually, and the, the first season was animated by Klasky Chupo, which was the animation house that did Rugrats. Um, that was, I think yeah. they had a lot of problems with Klasky, and that's like the aforementioned issues with Some Enchanted Evening. Uh, they eventually moved over to Film Roman, which I don't know if they're going to keep Film Roman around now that The Simpsons is a Disney property. I imagine with all the animation prowess within Disney, they won't. But um, yeah, that's part of why the animation just looks so much better after season one. That's interesting, too, Do because the, the Rugrats animation style, I, w- I would consider pretty kind of like in the same the same family as the Simpsons animation in terms of like the stuff they do but the Rugrats even in the Rugrats first you know few episodes are also you know kind of rough but yeah I don't know it's very sort of like it's like it's like a, it's like a, the style is like more solid and more like fully formed um not to the degree of something like King of the Hill which as you point out was like from day one like fully like everything was like set um, that, like that's the- interesting with early Rugrats, there's definitely more use of texture, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. like, than than there was in this this like season of Simpsons. I, Rugrats yes. was like my like formative animation show, very, very uh, uh into it. I rewatched it all recently. Um, it's on Hulu. <laughs> don't, we don't have Hulu up here in Canada. No. We uh, which it's I'm there is not a single platform, including like you can't even buy it off iTunes to watch King of the Hill. So that's oh. like that's the bane of my existence every day. Man, um, that sucks. Yeah. yeah, but no, I agree with you. Rugrats was super textured, like carpet and hair and stuff, and like gross things. Like they they didn't have that in the Simpsons season one. Um, yeah, which was a shame. Like even um, there's a scene in, in the Homer's Night Out where they go to the Rusty Barnacle and Bart gets a plate of tentacles, and it really just looks. It looks like flat lo- flat noodles to me. Like, it looks so bad. And then the way Bart's whole face turns green in that weird gradient style, like, oh, I, I can't imagine how I would feel if the whole thing stayed that way. Now, Brie, you... sorry, Kelsey, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you, you go ahead, because I, I was going to try to move us into, like, the, the final There's stages of this. a bunch of, of Canadians this. here. So so was I. I was I was also gonna do that. So. Well, let's well let's both present our our uh, segue, and then Brie, you can decide on which one you want to pursue. <laughs> Sounds good. So my question was gonna be: Do you think that watching this season of The Simpsons is like enhances viewing of the rest of The Simpsons in general? Do you think like because I think there's an agreement that this season is not as good as like peak Simpsons, but do you think? you need to watch it to like truly appreciate what the Simpsons became. Well, okay. Now Jason, you go. <laughs> and I was going to say, actually these could work in tandem. I'm not realizing. Cause what I was going to say was Brie for Kelsey going forward. Do you think she should just keep watching like straight through an order or maybe hit some of the, like, you know, the big ones uh, right next, next, or would it be fun? And this is my, this is probably a bad idea, but to just now uh, pick a random episode from like the most recent season and just to see what the show has, like, over the course of three full decades, the span of <laughs> basically our entire lives, uh, the show has continued. Which is, I want to take a minute here at the end to acknowledge that that is completely wild and so unique and weird. Um, yeah, that. Yeah, you can say what you will about the quality and its alleged decline, but, like, I just feel, like, I feel really happy for The Simpsons that it's this show that no one thought would make it, and now is as old as I am and like good good for you the Simpsons 
Um, so to answer your question, Jason, I think um, I think a steady watch through is probably one of the best things you can do because like there is brilliance in season two. There is lots of brilliance in season three. Um, I think a lot of nerds would agree that five is the strongest. My, my main thing will be like, just get to summer of four foot two. Like you will cry, you will laugh, you will do Millhouse's uh, sprinkler face all the time. Um, but um, as for... Um, as for selecting a random episode of the current season, I, I can't speak to that because I don't think I've watched anything from the current season. Um, anything written by Megan Amram in the last couple of years, she's amazing. She wrote a fantastic um, send up of men's rights activists a few years ago, and then one about crystal shops as well. Um, she's she's fantastic. She's a great Twitter follow as well. Um, it's almost like you should let women write TV shows. Um, so as for Kelsey's question, um, I I will say yes, but that's also keeping in mind that the way I enjoy things is through context. Like I was a cultural studies major and I will always emphasize to people, well, culture is art plus context um, or culture is media plus context. And so for me, knowing what a piece of media came from and knowing what a piece of IP came from is a huge part of appreciating it for me. Um, the biggest thing I would say, and again, this is a pedantic note I took, but um, if you watch the sh the episode Homer's Enemy, which I think is a season seven or eight, it's it's a season eight episode. Um, that's the, the Frank Grimes episode. Uh, some people argue that that was like the last good episode of The Simpsons. I think there were plenty of good episodes after that, but um, it really is the best way to sh kind of hang a lampshade on the first season because first of all, like it, it hangs a lampshade on how much The Simpsons actually have because Frank Grimes points out like, you're, you know, you have a single income, like technical job and you have a huge house with two cars and like kids that are dressed nice and lobsters for dinner uh, and I have nothing. Um, and Homer's just like, yeah, don't ask me how the economy works. Um, so that's, that, that's one thing, but it's also like, it shows the change because in, by season eight, like I said, you've got this like very absurd extended cast uh, and everyone loves Homer. Homer is beloved uh, and like people put up with his idiocy, whereas he's such an underdog in season one. And what drives Frank Grimes crazy is like, no, this guy should have killed us all a long time ago. Why are you enabling him? Um, so that's like a great exercise is once you get through the first season, watch the Frank Grimes episode. Um, like just about the, the one thing that I feel is really missing from season one and that you start to appreciate, I think it comes in in season three is Troy McClure um, and, and Lionel Hutz, but Troy McClure really, like Phil Hartman, um, that was the first like celebrity death that really affected me, but like he brought so much to the show um, because it gave them, and, and it does still go with the anachronistic style, he gave them the set piece of the informational film and like the, the film strip that the kids watch and that was such a crucial thing. So sometimes if you're watching the second season, you see the Troy McClure film strips and you're like, oh, this would have been so good in the first season. Troy, Troy McClure is also a great character, I think, because he, he, um, he his, his very presence is like kind of a minor, but like very like deeply felt indictment of Hollywood and celebrity culture and all that. So every time he shows up, you get this new sort of like element to the stew that is The Simpsons, and it really adds a, a lot to the show, I think. So that's, a, yeah, Troy McClure, great. Uh, yeah, very, very good, very good addition 
Phil Hartman, rest in peace. I, I'm a rare person who actually prefers Lionel Hutz. I think Lionel Hutz is also um, is the slightly better character, but the set piece of Troy and those those films is what really does it for me. So yeah, it's it's definitely worth a chronological watch through. I think you'll be very well entertained until about season ten or eleven. Yeah, the Homer's Enemy episode, the Frank Grimes episode is is I think it just has the. I think it took on this place people's minds as like the last good episode because it was self-aware and because it took place like kind of when the show was about to stop being good. Uh, but I think by itself, that is actually, yeah, it's very funny. It's a very funny way to examine the show from that point of view. And I think, I think Kelsey, I think, I think Brie, you're right. The steady watch through is a way to go. Cause I believe, I think Kelsey, once you get to when the show stops being good, your interest will taper off naturally. Yeah, pretty much. There's good only so know. much you can take. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I'm also a kind of person who like. I like to know the context, and I like to know like all the, all the things. And I'm very much like a completionist when it comes to stuff like that. Um, I probably will not complete The Simpsons. Let's be honest. It's a lot of episodes, but <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think I would. I I I have a lot of trouble like any sort of sitcom just like jumping in in the middle. Um, my other sort of ending question would be like, what do you think the legacy of The Simpsons is as far as like what's on TV now that like owes a huge debt to The Simpsons? Do you think every adult animation like? Well, when you think of how many uh, people um, that are on adult animation or other comedy now came through The Simpsons writers' room, like I think pretty much South Park is the only major adult uh adults cartoon that didn't have prominent writers come from simpsons um and then even besides um uh besides writers there's the animators like we haven't even talked about brad bird who did one of my favorite movies the iron giant um brad bird his first episode was crusty gets busted which is again like huge place in my heart um but i think the simpsons what it did to influence um uh influence comedy which first of all like there was the fact that there wasn't a lot about working class families in that area. Like it, it premiered a year after Roseanne um, and Roseanne was very influential in that. Like say what you will about Roseanne now, it was a really important show. Um, but then it also, unlike Roseanne, it didn't have a laugh track and it like, it completely changed the rhythm of jokes because you know, it's that joke per minute style and seeing just how much silliness you could get in. And it was so smart with that silliness because like, I mean, to, to probably a negative point, almost all the writers came from Harvard. Very few of them didn't. Um, like I, Schwarzwelder didn't, obviously he came from like a weird crater, but um, like it was <laughs> so silly and yet so smart. And I think it made a lot of um, people want to step up their comedy. Uh, so I think it's legacy uh, just in terms of how funny shit could be, um, it, it I, I, I owe a lot to The Simpsons. Uh, it, also, like the writers on The Simpsons now were like us; they grew up watching it, and, and so that's so cool. Yeah, I think for me, like watching this, I see a lot of of like the. I don't watch a ton of like adult comedy, but I do watch Bob's Burgers, and I feel like I see a lot of of that show coming from here yeah I think that was like just one thing that like you know we've done a lot of things where I've watched something that like most people have seen and it's been really interesting for me to see like oh I don't know that this is like something I would enjoy now but I can see why it's important and that's always like really interesting for me being like oh this is really important in terms of like the history of tv comedy (laughs) 
my final question, because we are at like an hour and 15 minutes now, um, would be, have you written a Simpsons spec script and what was it about? <laughs> or what would it be about if you wrote it? I wrote a Simpsons spec script when I was 12 years old. Hell yes. Um, I like to say that I predicted the gig economy um, because I predicted that, um, like, because it did always bother me, uh, although I was a kid, like, my, my mom worked, she worked at home. She was a, a musician and a music teacher. Um, and it always bothered me that we had two cars because, like, why do we need two cars? And it always bothered me that the Simpsons had two cars. Marge didn't work. There's no need for them to have two cars. So I wrote a script that basically took out all my shit on that, which was that Marge realizes she can make extra money with her car by becoming a food delivery driver and just picking up food for people. And I, I think like I submitted it to um, the Springfield Nuclear Power Plant fan site, but I, I don't remember it ever going up. But um, and I, I, I did have a side plot involving Lisa and Nelson, or like Lisa and the General Springfield Elementary kids. I cannot remember what it was, but it was Marge like becoming a delivery driver, and I think it was kind of inspired by the Listen Lady episode, in which everyone starts to depend on Marge. But I look back and I'm like, did I predict Uber Eats? <laughs> yes. <laughs> a spec script for The Simpsons would be especially difficult because, as we mentioned, the show has been on for. 30 years so i mean i guess this is probably a problem in the writer's room too is that i don't know how you would i think it would be uniquely challenging to try to find a a storyline or an arrangement of characters uh that has not been done before which i guess is partially why now they lean more on like contemporary references they um, start they start kind of doing that in like season nine or ten is like they they will make fun of the fact like yeah you already had an elephant bart his name was stampy you loved him um or like <laughs> yeah like haven't or I will remind you that this uh, that this family has had a horse before. Like it's it's <laughs> they. I feel bad for those writers. Like I mean, being a writer in Hollywood, I've like never done it. Never known anyone that has. I am but a simple Canadian. But it does seem like a very intense job, and um, like they they don't make that much money for how incredibly hard they work, uh, and then to have thirty two years of of plot baggage behind you, like fuck out of here yeah where there's just like people on the internet being like um that already happened and you have to like avoid that all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah have no fears we've got stories for years um well Bree, unless you have anything else you'd like to you know i don't know anything else you want to say about the simpsons at all really or anything else in general you'd like to say or do or plug uh we can probably wrap up here uh, well, I'll never stop plugging my own personal brand, um, which is basically being a dick on Twitter. <laughs> being like, no, I'm not, I'm not a dick. I think of myself as a dick, and then I'm just like, I delete everything that could piss people off. Um, but you can find me at Breganism, that's at B-R-E-E-G-A-N-I-S-M. On Twitter, um, you can follow me on Instagram as well, but it's mostly pictures of my cat. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, Twitter... It's mainly hockey. It's less hockey now because, uh, didn't you hear? Hockey's over forever. Um, but, you know. Hockey's not over forever, Brie. We have optimism. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, the Philadelphia Flyers. Um, and then also, actually, at Breganism on Medium uh, is where I write uh, just some fun pop culture essays, including my essay 
about um, about Summer Four Foot Two. I've written an essay about um, why Saving Silverman somehow escaped two thousand one, like being the worst movie of the two thousands, and no one remembers it. Um, I am the editor-in-chief of Media in Canada, which is a national trade publication. Uh, it focuses on advertising, media, tech, and media buying. Um, but as a result, I'm not really able to freelance anywhere else because it's a conflict of interest with just about everything. So I just write these essays that no one asked for on Medium. <laughs> if you're interested in media buying, yeah, sure, read Media in Canada. But uh, yeah, Breganism on Medium is where you'll find all my thoughts on pop culture that no one asked for. They're good. I also well, enjoy I th- following th- you on Twitter. I <laughs> think there's always a place for examining the, uh, you know, the cultural um, debris of the 2000s. So I, I support anything that reexamines uh, Saving Silverman, a movie that, as far as I know, was played only in uh, two-hour chunks on Comedy Central. <laughs> oh, what a bad movie. <laughs> but thank you so much <laughs> for having me. It was, uh, it was such a pleasure. Yeah, thanks thank for, you for coming uh, on. pitching, yeah. This is great. Thanks for sliding into my DMs, Bree. Special thanks to Danny Abowd of the Weeping Willards for use of their song, Outside in the Rain, from their self-titled album available on Bandcamp. And special thanks to Carly Sussman, who designed our logo. You can find her work at carly-rose.com. Go, Go to, to therapy. therapy. Yeah, we did it. That really worked. Yay! All right. Yeah. Yeah. Now we stop recording. Stop. They wish I would go ahead and fuck my life up. Can't let them get to me. And even though I always fuck my life up, only I can mention me. They wish I would go ahead and fuck my life up. Can't let them get to me. And even though I always fuck my life up, only I can mention me. Only I can mention me. Only I can mention me. Um, pardon me, I have to belch. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> you 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 could have worked that into the homework impression if you'd like if you had if you'd had just a little bit more warning, you could have, I think, really worked that in.